Hi, Daniel. Welcome back from vacation. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Today is the U.S. soccer game, so I'm looking forward to catching the highlights later today. How are you doing, Evan? I'm doing well as well. Um, I wish I was catching some highlights. I probably will be trying to uh, decorate the house. I got my honeydew list uh, handed to me this morning. So <laughs> when I am when we're done recording and I'm done working for the day, I think I'm decorating the rest of the day. Um, well, today we have a fun episode. We're re being joined by a new recurring guest. Um, so uh, it's their second episode coming back, but they'll be here for one more when we wrap out wrap up the season in a couple weeks. So um, can't believe that season one's almost over. Yeah, that's uh, a quick ten episodes. We're we're nearing the end here. All but right. we can go ahead and just jump into our hot topic segment if we want to go ahead. Yeah, let's do that. All right, so I'll start us out by introducing our first guest, uh, not our recurring guest, but uh, today we have Sue. Sue, thanks for joining us. Sue Plank from Goshen Health, uh, Director of Patient Access over there. Sue has a really interesting background starting out in the licensed clinical social worker uh, field, which is actually what my wife does or is looking to do. So uh, interesting for me, but you've had a switch over to patient access. You're obviously um, working with our other guests here with Naham and other uh, areas of the healthcare access management, and uh, just was reading through your background, really interesting to me, uh, your work in lean and lean facilitation. Curious to hear more about that today, uh, but thanks for joining us, Sue. Good to be here, thanks. All right, and I get the pleasure of reintroducing our second guest. Uh, they come with over 16 years of revenue cycle access management experience. Um, they are have helped with lots of conversions to Epic. They are one of our, um, directors here at Wilshire for our people and culture. Um, they also have served on Naham um, as a board director. That's probably where Sue and him uh, met originally. And then they've um, also, you know, come from a eight-time MAP award-winning organization, um, which is kind of a big feat. It's, it's hard to get those uh, credentials behind um, organizations' titles now these days. So welcome, Tim Holland, back to uh, rejoin us for more patient access fun. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. So I get the pleasure of starting off the hot topics today. Sue, Tim, this one is for both of you. We should be covering topics that uh, hopefully are interesting for you. Obviously, you're doing this for your day today. Uh, but Sue, we're going to start out with a question of just your transition to patient access from your initial starting place in your career. Hoping you can give our listeners just a little background on what interests you about patient access and just how that journey has been for you over the last number of years. Sure. So I started in healthcare about 14 years ago, coming up on 15, actually, and um, started as a in the world of social work and thought that's actually where I would land for the rest of my time in social, in, in healthcare, but was introduced to the, um, the world of lean about four years into my social work. And actually prior to social work, uh, was working in the world of business and management. So it was kind of an interesting blend of the two when you're working with change management and, and just kind of the dynamics of um, how people think about change that's happening around them. And I, I just thoroughly enjoyed uh, working with facilitating groups 
that we're actually looking at change management and making process improvement in those groups. Um, and lo and behold, I was introduced to the world of revenue cycle in that process and uh, mapped many revenue cycle processes from beginning to end in there. And um, an opportunity came open to uh, provide some stronger leadership in the in our front end and um, uh, got tapped essentially to think about that as uh, my next move. So became director of patient access. And that was in the fall of 2018. So I entered uh, a department where um, we were looking at really supporting and working with making a lot of changes in technology. Um, there was um, a, really a mandate from the board to look at ways to engage with patients digitally uh, during that process. And we, we just were still doing things uh, in a very manual way. So it was exciting to add the lean process to uh, the patient access world and, and then to provide an opportunity to be able to manage within that. It's a little different leading change management projects and then being able to walk away and move to the next project. It's a very different thing to manage on a daily basis in a lean environment where you're actually working with the people that you're, that you're wanting to make changes with and uh, thoroughly loved it, still do. I loved your background and how you came from just, you know, one end of the spectrum to the other, but do you think that the social work and some of your background has helped kind of shape the way you lead and direct your department on a day-to-day? Undoubtedly. Um, I, I actually, I kind of joke around about this, um, but I feel like it's, it's a, it's a requirement, right? <laughs> to have a, uh, to have a license in social work, to be able to manage uh, the many changes that, that are occurring with staff, um, you know, the dynamics that, that occur not only in the work life, but also, um, you know, managing, they're trying to balance home life and work. Um, you're also managing all of the different, um, I'm gonna say dynamic, I suppose, of the ancillary departments working with, I mean, everybody blames the front end for everything, right? So it's learning that advocacy work and learning how to do um, problem solving, calling people on the, what I would call uh, some of the um, um, the all or nothing thinking, right? That That happens that we learn about in social work. When someone says, your team is always making this mistake. Ah, I like to call them on that word always. That means we never get it right. <laughs> um, and, and what it leads to, though, is a lot of, I mean, I, I honestly believe it's led us to a lot of really good problem solving um, because it allows me to um, work with others in a, in a problem solving way as opposed to um, more of a, a, a blame laying way if you will. So understanding a little bit more about how groups work, uh, how teams work, and really the value of positive reinforcement and how that plays into team building has all really been um, kind of positive attributes that have worked well within the department and also with the other departments that we work with. 
So Sue, it sounds like, you know, in your current role, you're doing a ton of collaboration and really you've been able to leverage all of those wonderful social working skills. And I think, you know, some of the looking back in my old ops days, even before I joined Revenue Cycle, back when I was in clinical operations and finance, actually, I, you know, I I had social workers really, I, I looked up to them because they had that art of communication and that ability to use words in a meaningful, impactful way. So with that, you know, we also know that you've really extended your own personal growth in having to learn the patient access space. I mean, going from being familiar with a kind of high level from being on the clinical ops side now over to more of the revenue cycle ops side, still partnering with clinicians on a daily basis, you had to expand that. And I, in my understanding in our prep calls and talking with other Naham colleagues, you know, that's really what led you into connecting into Naham. So how have you really leveraged, you know, your personal growth and transition in learning, learning more about revenue cycle and patient access and, and taking that and that broad and in expanding into your professional collaborations with others? So a little bit about my personality, when I launch into something new, I do a little bit of research and find out, okay, so I don't, I don't need to know everything, but I need to connect to people who do. <laughs> and um, so one of the tools that I used right off was I, I Googled to find out, okay, where, where is the, uh, the library of information about patient access? And that's how I stumbled into um, Naham and started uh, researching items on their page um, particularly interested in, I knew that the, um, the climate that I was moving into in my own patient access department had uh, a really high vacancy rate when I, when I took over. Um, the vacancy rate was about 24%. And um, we have a small department. And I was like, I, I need to find a way to, um, to build these colleagues up. So what have other people done? And that's, that's what I started researching. And lo and behold, I found, um, I found interesting information about a conference that they had the previous year and a presenter named Tim Holland who, um, who had presented. So I looked up Tim and uh, talked with him on the phone and, and really picked his brain about what he had presented on and what had been successful for him. So found that very valuable and also found a great friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it ended up being a couple of different calls that, that would typically last an hour plus. Uh, and I ended up sending her uh, pretty much all of my career ladder material, a lot of the job description material, a lot of things that, that we kind of created at my old organization. Uh, to get a lot of this going. And I'm uh, just super proud of what Sue's been able to do with that, both within her own department and even outside of that, because of your, you said your hospital has picked up uh, bits and pieces of that to kind of grow with as well, right? Right, right. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the value of um, connecting, and I'm, I'm a networker at heart, um, so something I enjoy doing, but I've I've learned the most by being open to the ideas of others in terms of learning what they've done. And sometimes that's learning what not to do, but that's as valuable as learning what to do. And um, I, I have met some incredibly gifted 
and talented individuals who have uh, shared really shamelessly <laughs> in the experiences that they have had in uh, the patient access world. So in four short years uh, in my time here, um, have been really blessed with the experience of those who have been in the field for many, many years. Um, and, and, you know, I've also been blessed by other leaders within Goshen Health who have lived uh, in the revenue cycle for quite a long time. Um, I spent about five years in the revenue cycle in, in a, a lean environment. So um, learned a lot in that process as well. But it's, it's that networking piece um, that proves valuable to me time and again. And uh, Nahum has certainly been a great resource um, in my patient access world, as well as uh, connecting with folks like Tim and, and others like him uh, around, the, around the U.S. Perfect. So Tim, um, we don't want to forget about you uh, in the conversation either. And, um, you know, it's just, it, it's eye-opening how all of us do come with different backgrounds into revenue cycle space and even revenue cycle IT spaces. We, I mean, if you look at Epic, they're not always just picking, you know, brand new tech kids or computer science kids. They're pulling, you know, business majors. They're pulling a lot of educators actually to be part of their education mm -hmm. department as well. Tim, last time in our last episode that you joined, we didn't get a whole lot of time to venture down your uh, historical roadmap that led you here to uh, the Wilshire Group. But um, do you mind giving our listeners a little bit more about your background and how did, how did you come into patient access? And then how did you actually end up here at Wilshire? Yeah, um, I never actually intended to get into healthcare. Um, when I was going to college, I was going for a uh, BBA in management. My dad is an engineer by trade and uh, has always worked in manufacturing facilities. And I, quite frankly, just thought I would follow in similar footsteps. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, and I just, healthcare never came up. Well, when I um, was in college, I delivered pizzas. Uh, for for kind of my, my side job. Um, and I happened to break my leg um, while I was out on a delivery run. Well, when I'd healed from all that, didn't exactly want to go back to delivering pizzas again. Um, my wife was a nurse extern uh, training to be a nurse. And she had mentioned that the hospital where, where she was externing at um, is always looking to hire people. So I just happened to go online and apply for a job. And next thing you know, um, <clears throat> I'm working uh, PRN shifts 3 p.m. or pardon me, 5 p.m. to 3:30 a.m. Uh, in the emergency room, uh, and that turned into a full-time gig, which then turned into a shift leader, which then turned into a manager. Uh, and you know, college is happening all this time, and I, I finally finished my degrees. Uh, in, ended up going back for a master's in uh, public administration and healthcare, um, and found myself sitting in an executive director role um, over a number of different facilities in different in, in different cities within my area. Um, Wilshire comes knocking on my door next thing you know and, and again it's from the networking side I uh, happen to know a couple of people that worked at Wilshire through Nahan and through some other organizations and um, I made the difficult decision but good decision I believe to, to jump from my old organization to Wilshire I've been here ever since I'm loving it perfect well, it sounds like, you know, collaboration is key for all of you, both of you in your education path. I know it is for both myself and I, I'm 90% sure for Daniel based off all of our conversations. <laughs> um, 
you know, we are going to dive in here in just a few minutes into um, our hot topics or debate area more of um, the portion. But I think this is a good spot to take a quick break, um, if you guys all agree, and we'll be right back. There are thousands of medical offices and facilities across America, each navigating through changing regulations and reimbursement models while striving for positive patient experiences and outcomes. A common element in each of these facilities is patient access, the front line of both the revenue cycle and the patient experience. Though diverse in facility size and geography, patient access professionals unite around a common purpose, enhancing the overall patient experience to increase patient satisfaction and outcomes. Through it all, one organization is there to educate, connect, inform, and pave the way toward the future of patient access. The National Association of Healthcare Access Management recognizes the changing role of patient access professionals and their increased importance. And we're back. All right. So jumping into the debate section where we talk about industry trends, uh, we're going to have a little bit of conversation uh, just on out-of-the-box ideas. We want your thoughts. Uh, so Evan, you want to kick us off? Yeah. Um, so quick out of box ideas soon, Tim, we know based on your, our prior conversations in our past episode in episode six, um, of Nay with the Nahum current leadership, um, both of you guys have a history of implementing successful career, career ladders, um, and focusing on employee engagement as well. Um, we would really love to hear about both of your guys' programs and ideas. And, you know, I'll do a quick plug for our Nahum um, sponsors that we also have heard that they're commissioning you guys to write a joint article in a future future um, magazine issue publication. So we're excited to be able to link that out in the future as well for after this episode drops. But um, Sue, why don't we start with you? You know, talk to us about the career ladder. And it sounds like you've already alluded to it that, you know, Tim has um, kind of helped you out there in that based off of a prior presentation with him. You bet. So I, I took the approach of simplicity. Um, I had a group of, I have a small group here uh, of about 30 colleagues. And, you know, previously the idea was that, um, you know, we keep everybody at one level so that there are no arguments about, you know, people having uh, a different pay scale or that kind of thing. But what that led to was this idea that um, the only way that people can uh, improve or grow or have, um, you know, a, a personal development, if you will, is to grow out, right? And to transfer themselves to either another, promote themselves to another um, position within the organization, or ultimately, maybe even leave the organization. And I learned fairly early on in this position that we needed to find some way to address that desire for personal growth. Our frontline colleagues were hungering for that and having uh, the ability to do that. So um, that was kind of my first order business. Plus, I had this 24% vacancy rate that was like ridiculous. Uh, I needed to find a way to solve that. So um, made a proposal um, basically based on uh, the premise of the proposal was retention. 
uh, to, to be able to keep the best talent within my department. And so we had three workflows. So patient access represents a centralized scheduling, um, our pre-visit group and our registration group in the, main, um, in the main lobby. And so I kept it really simple. So you hire in at one level and the expectation obviously is that you strive for an accuracy level of at least 95% and you're gonna take assigned courses that you're given for onboarding and perhaps even other courses that you're given for either mandatory uh, training or, or personal enrichment. But if you wanna promote yourself to another level, which usually represents in our case, uh, an increased pay, then you're going to be motivated right, to learn and cross-train, because at that point, we had no one cross-trained. Registrars do new registration, pre-registration, new pre-registration, scheduling, new scheduling. It was a very siloed approach. And um, so level two meant that they had a primary workflow, but they were cross-training into another workflow. And accuracy, even working in this other workflow, was higher than 95%. And we gave them an education plan. I had found this incredible um, uh, curriculum that gave a broad stroke of revenue cycle in general, but then gave, the, gave them a very focused view on patient access processes, and then also gave them some information about other revenue cycle areas like um, little introduction into coding, little introduction into uh, the back office so that um, colleagues in patient access began to understand how much their work is valued by other folks in the reven revenue cycle. Because remember, everything stems from the front end and from us doing it correctly. So it included that curriculum, which was about 60 courses, not a small thing. And, um, and then of course the third level was knowing all three workflows. Um, still had an accuracy component, still had an education component. Um, so it allowed colleagues to be able to advance themselves, right? Be in charge of their own promotion. And then I had a leadership level as well, which was above, above those, those levels. Um, the other piece that I, that I learned from uh, an idea from Tim was also promoting um, the certifications from NAHAM that are specific to patient access. And so giving them the opportunity to, um, again, study for that certification, um, our, um, our program doesn't pay for the certification, but once they have the certification, I will reimburse them um, actually pay them a, a certain dollar amount with the understanding that they will stay in patient access a year. Um, because once they have that knowledge, I don't want them to go somewhere else, right? So that has really been very successful. And who knew that we were going to have a pandemic a couple years later? And so having colleagues who actually cross-trained prior to that pandemic helped us to actually get through um, the staffing shortages because we were no longer in a siloed approach, but simply had many people who knew who were cross-trained. So super beneficial to us. 
but didn't know that was going to be a benefit. Isn't that funny? Like we, we all know in the industry, they're called sketchestrars now, you know, I think Epic's coining other people's terms with it, but it, you know, having that cross-trained staff really did help a lot of our, us as organizations in the pandemic and being in the midst. I mean, I was not in working for Wilshire at the beginning of the pandemic. I was still in, you know, revenue cycle operations. And I can remember my team saying, Hey, you have to come and register patients at the front desk. We're understaffed. I'm like, I haven't registered a patient in years. So, okay, let's figure it out. But it it definitely, you know, it, it, it makes you really understand like, Oh, you got to keep up on these skills and you got to do this. And, and, and patient access has so much. They have to know, learn insurance and understand how to read a card differently than everybody, you know, everything. So they really are becoming more and more of a quote unquote pre-biller actually in the world of billing of where they're having to understand that information. So it's great that, you know, to hear that your program is showing them the value that they're adding to the back end. Um, I know in my former life, we, we had a all revenue cycle education portion. And I, part of my portion of the class I taught was actually teaching them how to read a claim and I'd pull the claim up and and I had it highlighted. This is what patient access enters in on the claim. This is what my team enters in on the claim. And this is what coding does so that everybody could see the different streams of the revenue cycle and where it actually populated on that piece of paper. So um, it's cool to see that, you know, you're doing something similar. Yeah. Well, I think too, you and Evan both have kind of touched on it too. There's, there's a return on investment uh, for organizations to put in these types of career ladders and actually, you know, work towards paying individuals more money, both in the, in terms of, you know, you, you save on the back end in terms of clean claims going through, you don't worry about that. You save in terms of retention because every, per, every associate that turns over the last time I looked at the metric, it was something like six, $7,000 to replace one person, uh, in, in that kind of a job that, that adds up quick when you have a high turnover rate. So just those two things alone, um, you know, can can make or break a, a department or organization sometimes. And then you add in things like the education that you're bringing along and the fact that you're now training individuals to not only know how to interpret insurance, but then explain the insurance. Oh, and by the way, Mr. Patient, you're going to have to owe $500 for your services today and then being able to explain why that is. A layperson typically can't do that. So it takes a lot of training and education to be able to correctly explain that to the patient in such a way that they're leaving your desk with a smile on your face and they just dropped $500. I mean, that, that's hard to do. So it, there's a big return on investment in a number of different ways just by taking the time and the money to do this. I, th- I think, Tim, you add that point too of like saying, hey, now you toss on patient access is also having to take on a, if a provider component, right? When that ABN is not signed, that explanation oh, yeah. of benefits is not signed at mm-hmm. the physician office <clears throat> patient access, the registrar has to explain it when it pops up on the screen to say, Hey, we mm-hmm. need you to do this or else, you know, it, 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 it you're out of pocket or we're going to need to reschedule you. I mean, now they've become the customer service portion and the physician having to explain something that's not really in their within their preview or scope to even understand maybe why they needed this. And, you know, we always looked at patient access as a entry point to revenue cycle, but really it, it, it's needing a more skillful 
team set now in being able mm-hmm. to cover such a vast area of um, things. So having yeah. a career track, I think is an amazing opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just collecting the ADN, right? It's, it's doing it in a Medicare compliant way. So you have to make sure that you're explaining the form in such a way that you're not, you know, going afoul with anything to do with Medicare. Uh, because that's going to get the entire organization in the hot water uh, if, if Medicare gets wind of that. So there's there's a lot of things that again you have to teach and 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 you know kind of push upon these people. And it's not fair to treat them as an entry level associate when they, quite frankly, in a lot of cases, will know more than you know a good chunk of other revenue cycle associates. And that, you know what I've learned too is that in our most so insurance right is not getting less complicated but more complicated. Right. Mm-hmm. And and then you add to that this whole factor of patient intake, right? You have the electronic uh registration where now the patient can actually serve as in some respects doing part of the registrar work. But what that leaves is the problem solving, right? So the patient can do the easy things, but it can't replace all the things. Um, that we mm-hmm. that we teach our registrars to do, which is to do problem solving, to do QA work, right? To be able to see whether insurance is active or not. And you know, I I talk to our registrars frequently. I mean, we ask them to know by sight over 350 insurance cards and mm-hmm. know what to do with it, whether it's out of network or not. <laughs> and so, well, you, like go. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Sue. No, no, that's fine. Uh, going, I mean, you're talking about self-service and, and, you know, patients being able to do more of their own registration. You look at, you know, regulations that are coming out now, price transparency, no surprise act, the, the fact that you have to have shoppable estimates uh, that a patient can generate themselves for a different service. Well, a patient can generate it on your side all they want, but if they get a piece of that estimate wrong, they bring that estimate in with them, and then you rerun the same estimate and find a pretty significant variance. How are you going to bridge that gap with the patient to explain what was wrong the first time versus now? Right. I mean, it goes back again to the training and the education and the ability, the, the communi- communication skills. I mean, it's, it's a completely different job today than it was 25 years ago. And that's exactly why career ladders are essential. <laughs> for thriving patient access departments, because you really need to continue to build that knowledge and build the building blocks of that knowledge. Um, You know, just having the experience of registering for the last 20 years doesn't cut it today. Sue, I have a question. to build that. Sure. I have a question for you. So career letters, I I can understand the value add but maybe going back five years ago, it's probably pretty daunting to think about like the cost, the time, the hurdles that you're going to have to run into to kind of tear everything down and build out a new career ladder. Um, I'm also, I'm from the Midwest as well. Like I hate change. Like the idea of like changing something that's been there and like sol- like solidified is like built into the network of the, the health system. Like that's, that's scary. Going back like to you as of 2018, I'm uh, thinking about like taking on this task what were some of the things that you were scared of and had to overcome? And what were hurdles that you ran into and just sort of like, just like went over it? You're like, this isn't a problem. We're going to get this done. And how did that turn into a successful outcome? Yeah. 
I don't know that there were many things I was afraid of at that point, and maybe I was just naive enough to say I'm going to march forward. Um, but certainly, I I built a lot of my work on the career ladder based on the cost of not retaining colleagues. Um, we were running through colleagues quickly. Uh, and as Tim already indicated, there's a cost associated with that. And, you know, not only did we do um, an implementation of a career ladder, but we also moved to centralized training. And what that allowed us to do is increase the quality of our training, but decrease the time of it. So that means from, you know, the point of hire to the to the time that they can actually register a patient on their own, on their own shift, and I don't have to double staff, um, also decrease some costs. So putting those two together, that was really the bones of my proposal, um, which allowed me to create an ROI that was actually, I mean, understanding that we're talking about frontline colleagues. So probably not the highest paid colleagues in the organization, um, created a pretty strong ROI especially when you compare that with the other things that Tim noted, right? Clean claim rate. If you have colleagues who actually understand what they're doing in the front end, it has a great impact on your preventable denials, um, which then impacts your clean claim rate and ultimately impacts the cash in the door. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious too. I mean, you've obviously been very, very successful with the career ladder and how you've been able to implement it, but are there any lessons learned or things you have done differently if, if you know you know what you know now five years ago? So probably the one lesson learned is uh, I didn't think quite big enough. Um, <laughs> so you know one of the things so, because I've had to debate this over and over. Um, and what I learned is that in our small organization in northern Indiana, um, there are, we have registrars with many titles. I was charged with being the director of patient access in my own department. That's what I worked mm -hmm. with. But there are many registrars in our health system. And so, you know, if I were doing it over, probably would think about it more systemically. More um, of a grand scale centralization. More of a grand strategy. scale, yep. So I don't have to yep. defend this over and over. Uh, and, you know, while I did work with HR in kind of setting the structure, I, I'd probably make it more of a team effort uh, instead of, uh, at that point, it was survival mode for me within my own department, but uh, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I would, I'd probably think of it more from a team approach. Uh, it might have taken a little longer, which I, I didn't have a lot of time back then. Um, I needed to do something fairly quickly. But I, I do feel like that if someone has the time to do it, that certainly would be a much more effective approach and um, and more widespread. Now, since you know 2018, we've I've also had the opportunity to continue to have conversation. And something we're looking at in the health system is being able to spread what we've done here and um, and apply that in other areas. But that would be our future state. Mm -hmm. I was chatting with Evan on the side because we like to chat, just bringing up so many questions, so many thoughts. One of the things <laughs> that we were chatting about here, obviously, like registrar to your point, it's 
maybe a little bit decentralized. And that also gets a little bit even more complicated or more decentralized if there's union versus non-union or addressing like the, the, the differences there. Have you had any success in navigating that? Or is that something that you've had any experience with, like trying to implement career ladders when maybe there's different training approaches going on or trying to centralize that model? I have not. I don't know if Tim I haven't from the... Yeah, I haven't from the union perspective, but in terms of working towards a more centralized uh, model, yes, I, I absolutely have. So before I got into my regional executive role, I was the director of the of the main campus for access services. And most um, locations within the main campus and the, and the outpatient uh, locations associated with it were already centralized, but there were a couple of um, uh, outlying areas that that you know, for whatever reason, 20 years ago, when, when the, the clinical leadership, you know, started out with that particular department, they chose to silo themselves from the revenue cycle side all the way through the treatment side. Um, and I had to come in and say, wait, we're, we're having a, a, a bit of a significant issue here in terms of like the quality of registration or how we're processing patients through the wait time associated with that. We need to at least look at how we can help um, and that conversation slowly but surely started to evolve into like, well, how about you let me take on the front end piece of this? Uh, and then I'll work to improve things from, from you know, multiple aspects, from a patient uh, satisfaction perspective to a revenue cycle, clean claim rate, uh, point of service collections, you name it. Um, that was a very good practice run for me for when I did get into my regional role, um, because while the, the, all the locations had the same banner, there were different processes that kind of happened at each different hospital in each different city. Um, so being able to take what I learned from the, you know, centralizing of the department or two in my uh, local role and, you know, kind of convert that into a regional role and say, okay, let's look at your measurements. Let's look at your productivity. Where are we good? Where are we bad? How can we, you know, standardize and, and improve? Uh, and by, by looking at it through that lens uh, and then being able to show on paper Here's what's what's the problem. Here's how we're going to fix it, and, and being able to present it in such a matter-of-fact way to the executive leadership made the path towards centralization and standardization that much easier. Without that level of analysis and measurement, I would say it would be almost impossible to do unless you just had that direction coming from, <clears throat> pardon me, coming from the CEO. Sorry, guys, I seem to be losing my voice a little bit. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, I think. I think in relevant to our conversation here in having to build a plan, build it, right? Like when for our colleagues who are in union environments, being able to take your proposal that you are first always going to need to get blessed from your own operational leadership first, then taking that and applying it to the union environment and knowing that most unions control the work and control what that looks like within, I think it's just another approval board is how you approach it mm -hmm. and, and being able to show them the value of how the organization is also paying this back as a growth opportunity for the staff to get different pay incentives, get different promotional components and, and climb that ladder. Yes, it doesn't always take into the fact seniority, but it does show 
in, in when somebody would apply for that position, that next step in growth position that, yeah, they've, they've already invested in themselves in that cross training and the organization has done that as well. And they check those boxes with their seniority now to be considered to move into that next progressional role versus being out solely outbid by somebody with more senior that you're having to do a ground up hundred percent education. So it's, it's saying having the union help their members see that they should be adding their own value back in and saying, yes, I'm committed to doing this and let me get my educational background first before I try to just tackle it. And it, it's not owed to me because I, I have that seniority. So I think it's a, it's a different mindset, but it's more of a, just another approval body. So on that note, it's time to take another break. Um, so we will be right back. Claim Capital is a team of ex-Epic staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. And we're back. And we finally get to do it on an episode. We're uh, right in time for the Wilshire Lab. All right. In each episode, we attempt to explore submitted questions by you, the listeners. Um, and this week, we're going to answer one question that's been submitted. All right. So this question here, just to read a little bit for what was submitted here. Uh, a listener shared a little background to their question, and we continue to struggle with the age-old authorization being processed timely by health plans and the processing of the claim timely. What are some things that you all have seen in the access and insurance verification space to assist our uh, PFS, CBOs, in preventing authorization denials or fighting back on the denials? Is that something that you, I'm sure you all have had headaches with this, but just thinking, what, is, what are some things that you've seen uh, be successful in that prevention plan? Well, interestingly, I just sat on a committee this afternoon looking at our denials from last month, <laughs> and we asked this same question. So that group was made up of folks at the front end, as well as folks from our PFS uh, space. And, um, you know, I think what we've seen is um, a kind of a combination of things, but Things that we can see on the front end certainly is making certain that we are documenting the uh, information related to authorizations at the front end. So it's really making sure every I is dotted and every T is crossed, right? Because then when at the front end they say, they being the payer, says no auth is required, we at least have that documentation so that. Our, our PFS friends um, are able to appeal those uh, cases when they come in for uh, denial for pre-authorization. And uh, we can prove, no, at the front end, this is, this is actually what happened. And I think those, those are some of the key things that, uh, key findings that we learned today is certainly those, those spaces where um, we, have, we have to be smarter in terms of making sure that our documentation is sound. Um, 
all the way from the provider's office who, you know, may be getting that authorization, but our patient access teams are monitoring that to make sure that we get an auth when we need an auth and to make sure that those are complete before the patient receives their service. I can ask a follow-up on that. I, I come from like an implementation space in the in the Epic world, and I oftentimes struggle, do I do this in training or do I do this in like an EMR, like build it in as a hard stop, let someone has to like cross all the I's or cross all the T's, dot the I's, uh, you get it. What have you found be more successful and what approach are you all taking there? We're using a work list um, and we found that we do need a little bit of flexibility, right? So we need the hard stop in the sense that we need that notification that this is, this is going to be an auth that we need. And if we don't have it, we need to address either, you know, identifying is this an emergent situation? Um, does it put the patient in jeopardy? Do we have, would we have authorization to move forward? Um, does, does the patient know, right? Have we, have we included the patient in this conversation? Um, those, and, and, you know, it's, it's not a, at least in, in our health system, we, we want to make sure that it's not just a, um, you know, everything requires a pre-cert, there certainly is still room there to work in a patient-centered world. But we have to define what patient-centered means because I've learned that there are a lot of people who've been in healthcare a long time and they feel like the answer is, well, we'll just do an ABN. And they kind of lose sight of the fact that ABN is certainly not patient-centered. That's putting the cost of this entire thing on the patient's back. We don't want to do that. Um, so yeah, we certainly, I think, have better tools. Uh, but we're, we also aren't always used to including the patient in that conversation. And I think that's, that's a key piece. And I, I think that's as much as part, a part of price transparency than estimates are, hmm. is including the patient in that conversation. I, I think also it, it you know, that the, the, there's a lot that you can kind of go over with that question, you know, it, it, going from Sue's perspective, just in terms of, of, you know, reviewing how things can improve from the denial end, you know, the, the way I typically approach these types of things, I, I do look at the denials, but also looking at process um, and, and standardizing where you can, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of centralization where you can. So central scheduling, central authorization, and, and really getting to a point to where you can say, okay, I have this MRI. It's not a stat MRI. Uh, I need, and if I'm, if it's, if it's a centralized authorization process and I'm scheduling first and I'm authorizing second, I need to be able to provide the leeway for the authorization team to go out and grab that MR, that authorization for that MRI. So uh, I'm managing the patient's expectations because as soon as the patient, ideally, as soon as the patient walks out of the office or shortly after that, I'm calling the patient to schedule the MRI. I say our next available uh, appointment for this is going to be, you know, next Thursday, which is say three days from now or whatever it might be. Um, and then that act alone makes the patient feel like they are part of the conversation. They are getting taken care of, but it also helps the hospital's needs of making sure they go out and secure that, that MRI. Um, in addition to that, should there be gaps in information uh, through that authorization process when you're going out and trying to, to secure that, like say you have to go back and get clinical information, you have the time to communicate with the doctor or the nurse at the clinic 
to get what you need and to put that back into the to the authorization form. Um, so it, I think that if you look at it from that particular side, and if you have the ability to either build it into your medical record uh, or your like in, in Epic's case, Epic will build a lot of this for you and, and basically lay it out on a silver platter for you. If you're not on Epic, really working to create and standardize that process with whatever you have to work with in-house, but just making sure that that process is followed regularly and religiously I think is going to benefit you in the long run and you will see a reduction in your uh, lack of authorization denials. Yeah, I think that I think in addition to, you know, this this item where what it circles us back to is education to our team members as well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the importance of going the next step. So just looking at what a general payer requirement is great, but having to look at the individual plan requirement is really what is the driver. And then being able to take that back to the physician who's actually ordering the procedure and say, you know what, while you're absolutely correct, Blue Cross might not require this. However, that individual administrated plan or self-funded plan actually does require this level of authorization. And teaching our team members how to have that conversation and then also explain that to the patient, like this is going to cause a delay in being able to get it because we must secure auth or else you will be the one financially responsible and we'll have you signing a document saying that you understand you're financially responsible for that. I think that is a big, um, a big saver in patient satisfaction as well. Um, I think the other component around authorization denials that we as an industry need to continue to monitor is around Medicare CDSM requirement. While it's not a formal authorization, Medicare um, does mandate for managed Medicaid and Medicare and for med- traditional Medicare plans now that the patient qualifies for that um, higher acute um, Uh, diagnostic testing, both laboratory and for imaging. And that does include when the patient's in the emergency department. So where the doctor normally would do a CT is an MRI or is a general x-ray, actually what they qualify for based off their diagnosis and their components. And I think that we miss that still, but we will start to see once it's fully implemented, fines and regulations starting to come back to health systems as well when doctors bypass that process. And it's not going to be a traditional denial, but it is going to be needed to be treated as a denial around education and components and being able to bring in our patient access and our scheduling teams and even our imaging teams to make sure that those components are checked um, at time Mm -hmm. of um, before going in and completing that order for those physicians are going to be critical to the success of not having an inflation around authorization denial type activities. So, um, you know, just great points for us all to think about um, from, uh, from that standard, but there is no real great solution yet other than if you can be in those niche markets, which there are some out there where they control the entire market atmosphere, they have been able with their commercial payers to get no authorizations required. So, um, you know, but I do think that where we do have leverage is partnering with our managed care contracting teams and pushing them to get language that changes the um, turnaround times or actually bypasses an auth if the turnaround time for approval for authorization wasn't met. And that doesn't mean denying or 
subsequently pending the authorization approval for additional information. It is you either have made a decision to approve or deny within a certain time frame um, that's greater than giving them an open arm of, of 14 to 21 days, saying, no, we need authorization approval within you know three to five days. And if they're in-house, we need within a business day or two business days, whatever is deemed necessary. So I think the more we can start from revenue cycle side, partnering with our managed care teams and doing that, um, it'll help prevent those dings against the patient access front. And, and then also um, even for managed care um, um, can, for continual authorization for inpatient services. So. Evan, if I didn't know any better, I'd say you had a background in rev integrity for some reason. <laughs> I do, and denials. It's crazy. <laughs> well, one other thing on the communication with physicians, if you, if you can find a physician champion that has your back and, they can, and help you go to bat in terms of trying to change the culture and the mindset with how your physicians um, write orders and expect things to be done, that will go a long way for you. Uh, and it kind of goes back to, you know, the very first point that Sue made going back to her social work and being able to connect and, and, and network with different types of people. You know, that's not a connection that maybe not every access director would think to make, but being able to have that position executive champion to then go back and help you fight that type of a revenue cycle battle is going to do nothing but help you in the long run. Well, I'm going to have to wrap us here. Uh, this is we're running short on time. I appreciate our listener for the lovely question. And Sue, Tim, thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure having you on our on our podcast today. Just so that our Absolutely. listeners can reach out uh, if they have questions or want to get in contact with you. Uh, Sue, is there a, like a best way to reach out to you? The best way is probably by email. Uh, S as in Sue, Plank, and then the number two at ghostandhealth.com. What about you, Tim? Uh, email as well. It's t.holland at the wilshiregroup.net. All right. Well, Daniel, Tim, and team, uh, I think that's it for us today. You can also check us all out on LinkedIn if you need us. Um, and that's it. Bye-bye. If you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or find us on Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be found at Daniel underscore TWG. The Wilshire Group is at TWG Health for us on Facebook at the Wilshire Group or on our Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out on YouTube at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts or get additional information on a topic, email us at the Wilshire podcast at the Wilshire group.net. The best way for you to support this podcast is to rate, review and subscribe. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group, experience you can trust, results you can count on.